Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. We're going to pick things up in verse 16 of John chapter 19, and I'll be reading down uh, through verse 37. Then he, Pilate, delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they, sac- where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments And made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. That the scripture might be fulfilled which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs." But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done, that the scriptures should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading from his word this morning. You may be seated. Well, we've just spent spent nine months so far looking at the gospel according to John. And 
if I asked you right off the bat, what was John's purpose for writing this letter? What would you tell me? Come on. You got to quote it together, right? That's well, a twofold purpose, but what's the primary purpose? He presents Jesus as the what? Son of God who became the Lamb of God in order to take away the sins of the world. Okay? And so, maybe. Mark. There we go. There's the Son of God who became flesh, took on flesh to become the Lamb of God in order to take away the sins of the world. And then we've looked at that second purpose, and that is the underfold purpose of bringing unity to the church. We see a little bit of that in play. Just I'm not going to really talk about it today, but even Jesus on the cross, he sees... Mary, and then his mother, and then his mother's sister, then he sees Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, all these Marys, you know. And, um, but he looks at Mary, his mother, and then he looks at John, the one whom he loved, according to John, right? And he says, woman, behold your son, and then he says, behold your mother. And so John takes her, and um, tradition, church tradition says that John winds up taking Mary eventually to the city of Ephesus, okay? And so, hence, remember we talked about that John is probably in the city of Ephesus when he's writing this gospel, okay? And he's talking about the things that he has seen in, in, the, in the world, um, and that's why he's addressing all these things, okay? Um, but, so we've talked about that, and then last week, the last, um, last week we saw him standing before Pilate, and we saw this interaction that he had with Pilate, um, where Pilate is confronted with the truth, standing there in front of him, and Pilate sums it up in the beginning part with, what is truth? Where he should have been asking the question, who is truth? Or you are truth, making it a statement, okay? But he's, again, he's looking at it from the pagan's point of view, and he's not comprehending all this, but what is truth? And so, in the end, though, we're told then that he um, compromised, he capitulated on the truth, And so even though he recognized that something was going on and Jesus might have been exactly who he's talking about. Remember his wife had the dream, okay? And then um, then the the priests were saying he made himself the son of God and then he was even more afraid, okay? So, but in the end, they come at him with the accusation stating, well, if you let him go, then you're proving yourself not to be a friend of Caesar's, right? So he hands him over. And so he capitulates on the truth, and he hands him over to be crucified. And that's exactly where we started the reading today, to kind of pick it up at this point. Because at this moment, then, Jesus is now handed over to a process. He's already been scourged, okay? Um, and so on this picture here, we kind of see him being, have been bitten, beaten by the, um, the priests. But the scourging process, he would have been torn up. And I, I had a picture I was going to put on, and I said, no, nah, I'm not going to put that one on, because it's pretty realistic, Okay? Um, and so if you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ, they do a very good job um, of, of portraying it. And not that we need to, to, to have it set before us, but I think we need to understand what our God did for us. How he allowed himself to be abused at the hands of his own creation. And he didn't strike back. So as we are studying 1 Peter when we get to 1 Peter chapter 2, that, that Christ is our role model because being reviled, he, he did not revile in return. So, so we get into this part now where God's plan is going to be fulfilled. 
that he who came to become the Lamb of God is going to be that exactly. And what's exciting to me is that, again, in the spiritual realm, there is a battle going on. And Satan is behind all this. Remember when Jesus talked about um, to the chief priest when we were in the garden, um, Garden of Gethsemane, he says, but this is your hour in the power of darkness, right? That there's a spiritual war going on. So Jesus recognized the fact that this is happening. But so behind the scenes, Satan is trying to do what? What Satan want to do? Destroy the plan of God, okay? And so the idea is if he can destroy the king, right, then the kingdom's not going to be set up. He's destroyed God's plan. But little did he know that God's plan was for the king to come and to be the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. That God was going to redeem and restore all of mankind back to himself through his own death, burial, and resurrection. And so in seeking this, this plan of destruction, it actually winds up fulfilling. And so as I, as I study, study, as I meditate upon this, not necessarily this is the key where we're heading here, but just one of the things that I, I always constantly remember is that, again, what Satan means for evil, God will use for good. And so I just always have to remember that when trial, temptations, persecutions come into my life, that didn't take God by surprise. He even allowed them to come to his own son, to himself incarnate on the earth. Even when Satan didn't understand, Satan thought he had the upper hand. God then moves his next piece and says what? Checkmate, you missed it. (laughs) You missed it. The whole long way, you missed it. And so today, then, we want to, to move into this, this checkmate moment, if you would. This time when, when, when God was fulfilling his plan. And we see it in Jesus' statement on the cross. It is finished. And that's where we're going to really focus today. But before we get to there, first, I want to consider real briefly, real quickly, the location. Okay? We're given some information, so I want to consider the information real quick. First of all, we're told about the location. Where is the location? Where was Jesus crucified? Outside the city, but specifically, what was it? Golgotha. Golgotha. And what are we told about Golgotha, specifically? Ah, somebody said it. It's a place of the skull. Indeed... It is the place of the skull. Can everybody see the skull? Isn't that kind of cool? Now watch this. We're going to pan out from here. Okay. There it is. Okay. It is right outside the Damascus Gate. I think it's the Damascus Gate. Am I right, Gerard? Do you remember that? Or Steve, you were there. I think it was Damascus Gate. Anyways, it's right outside the gate. Okay. Um, And they've made it a bus stop right in front of it. Okay. Okay. But you can see it's on a hill. Okay. Where the Romans loved to do their executions in a public place where everybody could see it. And so there is your public spot on a hill right outside the gate. So everybody passing in and out of that major gate would see what? These malefactors being, being hung. And so I think it's interesting that God has, has kept. This isn't a manufactured skull. This is there. It's, it's, it's been there, okay? And so the place of the skull. So can I prove that where Jesus was, was crucified right there up in those, uh, 
those fences where the sepulchers are, you can see up above there. No, I can't prove that, but it seems pretty, pretty interesting to me that it's still there. God has left it as a, uh, a marker, to, in my mind, of bearing proof to his word. Okay? That, again, people say, well, if there was only some proof. Okay? He puts details into his word that we might know. Okay? The second thing is that we're told is that he was hung between two malefactors. Okay? I like um, Buddy Davis's um, statement on this in one of his songs. He said, one was right and one was left. Not wrong, left. One was right and one was left. And so the one who was right was the guy who repented of his sins and asked Jesus to remember him. This doesn't come from the book of John, right? But we know that it turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he says to him, he says, today you will be with me. The other guy? He was left. Okay? So anyways, but he's hung between two malefactors, and we're going to see the reason for that in just a moment. Okay? So that's the location. And secondly, then we're told about the accusation that is written about him, and that is that Pilate placed an accusation um, upon him. So on the, the, the cross, on this part of it, whether there was actually, um, it was a T-shape, or whether it was a, what we refer to as a cross-shape, um, above it, on this section, even if it was a T-shape, there would have been a post um, with, a, with an accusation or what their charge was that was placed above them. So everybody could see, what's this guy up here for? So he's, he's want, for uh, sedition, for, um, for armed robbery, whatever. Jesus' um, thing that he was dying for was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He wanted everybody to know. Why the priests wanted this guy to be killed. Do you remember his final statement to them last week as we're talking about it? It wasn't behold the man. It was behold your king. I really do. I think he came to to this understanding whether this is tongue in cheek. Some people say that he was just, this is a slam. I'm not positive that, that this was a slam. Okay? I don't want to put it out there. I'm not saying that, that, that he came to faith, because clearly I don't believe that. Okay? But, but I think there's something more going on in Pilate. And so he places up there, he says, Jesus Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Well, this comes into these, um, oh, there's, there's your languages. He, is it written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin? Okay? And the reason was, is Hebrew was the, 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 the language of the common people. Greek was the, the world language at the time. And then Latin was the, the language of the Romans. So, no matter who you were walking through there, you could read it. You'd know what, his, what he was being accused of. But there was then this reaction that came to it um, from the, the, the priests who came to him and said, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. To that, then Pilate responded, Egrafata, egrafata. At least in the Greek, it's what it said. I don't know what he said in Latin, but I'm sure it was just the two words again. It's like the vini vidi vici type thing, you know, that he probably just said two words. But what it was, was what I've written, I've written. Or I've written what I've written. But it's in the perfect sense, which is really kind of fun. We'll talk about the perfect in just a moment when we get to it is finished. But this is in the perfect sense as well. And I think that it's kind of prophetic. What has been written has been written. Okay? And so, what I have written, I have written. And that's where it stands. So now we get into this statement then of Jesus, 
where Jesus is on the cross, and he says, I thirst. They bring him the drink, right? And then knowing that all things were fulfilled, he cries out, Tetelestai. Tetelestai. It is finished. And again, it comes from the, the Greek word teleo, which means to be uh, finished, perfect, matured, complete. Um, and so, and it was, and then the past tense. So you can see that, I know that you say, oh, I don't read Greek, but I put it there together because you can see that looks pretty close, doesn't it? I mean, you can almost read, if you knew that the lambda was an L, you can almost then read the Greek and say, oh, that says telelestai. I can see that. Well, this here, okay, is an S, okay, the, the sigma, um, but that would become a omega. So teleo is really the, the, the word right there. But it means then finished, perfect, complete. Whenever it becomes in a perfect tense, they double that first um, consonant and put an epsilon there. So t the first TE just tells us that it's perfect. Well, what does it mean? A perfect tense is a past action that has a continuing result. It has been finished. In the financial realm, that's what you would state. Well, in fact, I stated it in March when I paid off my house. I yelled, Tedalestai. It's been paid for. It's finished. There are no more payments that ever have to be made. And that's exactly what's happening on the cross at this very moment. Everything has been fulfilled that needs to be fulfilled. So that should lead you to the question, so what's the it? What is it that has been finished? Well, I think there's multiple things that we're going to look at here. I've got five, okay? First of all, we've got the perfection of God's word. Three times in this passage, we read... Um, verse 24, verse 28, verse 36, that the scripture should be fulfilled, that the scripture should be fulfilled, that the scripture should be fulfilled. But you'll note that two of those times, it's the word plerao, okay? And one of those times is um, uh, teleo, teleo. Um, and so plerao is pleroma, okay? And you guys know this word. That's the word with the, the cup, Okay that you're pouring the, the liquid into it, and how much can you put into it? You remember? Say again? A, yeah, probably maybe even a drop or two more than it can hold. But anyways, it beads over the top because of hydrogen bonding. But if you put in that extra drop, that's when it spills out over, okay? And so there's that certain point where it cannot hold another drop, okay? So that's the word play uh oh But the word teleo then is the word to be completed, to be perfected, to be finished, okay? And so Jesus uses, or John uses these words interchangeably when he's talking about what Jesus did on the cross. So not only were the scriptures fulfilled like they were poured into the cup and not one more moment of time could fit in till it was finished, because it was done. Also then, the, the intent of them were completed as well. So in each one of these, we're told that this is going to go on, and this is important for us as we look at it, okay? So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Psalm 22, okay? Psalm 22. And let's look at, briefly, some of this fulfillment that goes on. Psalm 22. Psalm 22. 
Okay? Verse 1, where the psalm, David writing the psalm, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? And then drop down to verse 6. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in Yahweh. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And that's exactly what we read in the other gospels that the, the priests and stuff coming past were, were mocking him with. You'd think that the, the, those who know the scriptures wouldn't have been declaring these things. It's amazing to me. Drop down to verse 13. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. That's some pretty profound prophecy, isn't it? These weren't things that really were fulfilled in David. David's just crying out how he feels. But God, again, 2 Timothy chapter 3, right, is speaking through David at that moment, bringing God breathing through David, declaring of what was going to happen in Messiah, the son of David, who would sit on his throne later on in life. Okay, turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness that we, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it pleased Yahweh to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. The pleasure of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the 
spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for their transgressions, for the transgressors. Jesus fulfilled these and other prophecies regarding him during this moment. And so John wants us to know that these things are happening. And so three times we're told these things were done in order for the scriptures to be completed, fulfilled, filled to the fullest. Nothing more had to be done. And so when Jesus declares it is finished, he meant it's complete. It's done. It's fulfilled. There's nothing else that needs to happen. That's really something to think about it. For me, at least, because we're going to still get to the what? The burial and the resurrection. But Jesus is already declaring at this moment, what? It's finished. Isn't that kind of fun? Okay. All right. So secondly, we have the perfection then of God's will. What else is there then to be, to be finished? Well, Jesus had said, John four thirty four. he said, um, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to what? Finish, to perfect, to mature, to complete his work. So the will of God and the work of God go hand in hand. God has a will for certain things to what? To happen. That was his work. Okay? And Jesus said, my job was to come to what? Finish it out. My father's been working up to this moment. My job is to what? Finish it out. Finish, finish the work that he's given me, but finish it out. He's got a plan of redemption that he's been working out. My job is to finish it out. So John five thirty six. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works I do bear witness to me. And the Father has sent me. John 17, verse 4. I have glorified you. He's talking to the Father. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished, teleo again, the work which you have given me to do. So there is then the perfection of God's will, that God's will was for man to be redeemed. We saw that all the way back in the garden from Genesis chapter 3, when when the curses was issued, the curse to to the serpent was what? You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head, okay? That there will be enmity between your seed and her seed, okay? And so then thirdly, there's the perfection then of God's law. Because a part then of this God's will, of this work that he's going to perform, is fulfilling, not destroying the law. Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18, this is part of the the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus declares, do not think that I came to destroy the law, or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill, plerao again. So that's that cup being poured into, right? It's going to come to its completion. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now, that word there shouldn't be fulfilled, but it all should become, is all should happen. Ginomai is the word to be, to happen, okay? And so, The point is that not one jot or one tittle will fail from the law until everything God has declared specifically would happen. So that should lead you to ask yourself the question, if you've never asked before, what is what? What's a jot and what's a tittle? So I'd like to answer that question for you right now. 
Okay? So this is from Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. This is where it says, And Adam knew Eve, et is just a, a beginning part, Eve, his wife. Okay? So, so Adam knew Eve, his wife. In there, there is a jot and a tittle. Okay? In fact, they're in the same word. Okay? Now the jot really, so the J for the English comes from the Germanic, which comes from the Yiddish, which comes from the Hebrew. Okay? So our J, you go over into Germanic, how would you say the J in, in Germanic? Yod. 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 So um, that's how we get Jehovah, coming from the Yod of Hebrew. So the Yod goes into the, 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 from the Yiddish into the Germanic as the Yod, which comes into us as the J. Okay? So there is the Jot, the Yod. Okay? So that's the Yod. So he says, not one of these little bitty letters, it's the smallest of the consonants of Hebrew. Okay? Not one of them is going to pass. You say, okay, so what's the what? What's the tittle? Now, I told you that they, both of these are going to be in the same word. You ready for this one? See that little bitty thing hanging out on the Daleth? That's called the tittle. It's what distinguishes it, really, from a Daleth from a, a Resh. If it wasn't there, you'd think it was a Resh. Okay? And so... But it has that little bitty thing hanging out the end, and that's called the tittle. Now, what's kind of fun about it is that there's not one letter then that's been placed that God didn't place there. And there's not one differentiation of letters that's there that God hasn't placed there for a reason. Do you get it? Now, who said that? Who made this statement? Jesus. Now you've got to ask yourself the question, did Jesus know what he's talking about? <laughs> yes. I mean, that, that's a no-brainer decision, right? Except for the fact, sometimes we still struggle with it. Because remember, as we talked about from the very beginning with the, the Advent thing, uh, do not be deceived, right? Because Adam and Eve were what? Deceived. What were they deceived from? Whether God what? Really meant what he said. Jesus is going back saying, look, what was spoken was spoken purposely. I didn't come, key here, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to what? Fulfill. To bring it up to completion. The law in and of itself, Paul stated, was not evil. Okay? So what do we have from here? Well, Romans 10, verse 4 tells us, Christ is the end, the telos, the perfection, the maturity of the law for righteousness. But how does it end? To everyone who believes. Christ is the perfection, the finish, the maturation, the completion of the law for everyone who believes. What if you don't believe? What if you don't believe? You're still under the law. You're not complete. That's exactly right. You're still under the law. You're looking to the law for your completion. But uh, James chapter 2, verse 10 says that if you obey the whole law and yet you stumble at what? One point, you're what? Guilty of? Of it all. The law ultimately brings death. It brings the awareness. It's the, it's the schoolmaster. It's the tutor. That brings us an awareness of sin, which then drives us 
to the payment of sin that Christ gave to us. And so if you reject it, you have no other payment. Now you stand on your own before God under the law. And by the law, no man is found redeemed. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. The book of Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 18 and 19. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made what? Nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So the law can make nothing perfect, nothing complete, nothing finished. Again, we're going to that word because this is the word which Jesus declared. It is finished. It is perfect. It is completed. Okay? Drop down to chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshy ordinances imposed until the time of the Reformation. So, the reality is that the law can't make you perfect, and the sacrifices which the law demand couldn't what? Make you perfect either. Okay? So, when Jesus came, he then perfected the, the law. Okay? That then leads into God's plan. Okay? This is all kind of a, I hope you can see, kind of it's building upon one another. Okay? That God had this plan. And Jesus then came to fulfill the will of God the law of the work of God, the law of God, then the plan of God. Okay. In that, then we see his plan of redemption being manifested to us throughout the old covenant. When God brings Israel out of Egypt, the final plague is the death of the firstborn. Jesus is called the firstborn. Okay. There's a reason for that. Not that he was the, you know, the, Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons like to be able to look at that and say, oh, he was what? That's when he was created. That's when he became, you know. But that's not what it means. But he's fulfilling this, this type, okay. And so in Exodus 12, you can go back and read these um, later, okay. But it's all about the Passover. And we're told that on the um, 10th day of Nisan, that they were supposed to choose a lamb without blemish, and they were supposed to examine it for four days to make sure that it had no blemish. And then on the 14th day of Nisan, at twilight, and twilight's between the time, it's actually between, between the evenings, is what it literally says in the Hebrew. And so between the going downs of the sun. And so the first going down of the sun is at noon, when it pa- passes the crest, and it starts coming down this way. And the second going down of the sun is when it goes down past the horizon. Okay? So between the evenings. So that... The, um, at twilight is when the lamb was supposed to be offered. That's between the time of 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock is generally what it came to be. Okay, and So on the 14th day at, um, at twilight, then that lamb was supposed to be offered. Jesus was offered when? When are we told? Any remember, remember the hour? But what? The ninth hour. The ninth hour starts at 6 and it works forward at 3 o'clock. Just as the Passover lambs 
were getting ready to be offered in the temple, Jesus cries out, it is finished, tetelestai, and he offers up his spirit. From other gospel accounts, what do we know happened at this very moment when, when Jesus offers up his spirit? There's a great earthquake, and the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom. Not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom. God is destroying that, because now the ultimate sacrifice is being offered. Not only was he the Passover lamb, but we also know that he was then the perfect sin sacrifice. I think. Oh, I turned it on. There we go. Perfect sin sacrifice, okay? So, what? No, I can't describe the veil in the temple. It was heavier, though. Um, I can't remember exactly what it's made out of. It's, a, it's like a linen thing, and it's got colors in it and gold in it, but I don't know exactly how they made it with the Herodian temple. Does it make sense? So whatever I said would... Pr- okay, yeah, it could have been. I don't... Yeah, I can't answer the question. Yeah, no, you're not going to walk up to and tear it, right. But the big thing is that it's torn from the top to the bottom. Say again? The thickness of it? Okay. Yeah, it'd be interesting. You guys look it up, find out where you get that from, okay? Whether it's just tradition or Josephus or whatever, okay? Um, so, yeah, so regardless, the point is that even if it's thinner, it doesn't really matter. People like to say that, but the point is that it rips from the top to the, the bottom, okay? And so that's a good aside. I'm, let me just take the moment for an aside because people want to say that even about the Red Sea, about it parting. Well, it's, it's known to have happened before other times that there has been a separating of the waters and stuff like that. And I go, okay, well, that's really interesting. So I'm not going to debate you whether it's ever happened before or not. Isn't it really a marvelous thing, though, that Moses went like this and the waters parted? I think that's kind of miraculous. You go do that. Spend your life doing it. And you can even say hocus pocus. You can even say alakazab or whatever, whatever you want to say before. And go like this. And then even wait all night and see if enough happens. To spark. The, the point is that it's, the miracle isn't just the dividing of the, it's the timing of the dividing of it. And so we have the earthquake that goes on and then the separating of it. It's just a marvelous thing at this very moment. The plan of God is being fulfilled. And when you go back, so even into Leviticus 4, verses 1 to 12, when you go back into it, there was specific things that happened when the priest would then offer the, um, the, the sin sacrifice. And so the, the priest would dip his finger into the blood. He would sprinkle it upon the altar seven times. Then he would anoint the four horns of the altar with the, the, the blood. And then he would take the remainder of the blood after the, after the sacrifice, and he would pour the blood at the base of the altar. Okay? So think about Jesus now as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The first thing that happens is he's scourged, right? So he's scourged and his back is ripped open. And so now he's forced to carry what? The altar on his back. The cross. I get it that it's his cross, but his cross is really his, his altar. He's going to be offered upon the altar. And as he's carrying that altar, if you would, What's happening? His blood is being sprinkled upon the cross, upon the altar. And then he's laid down, and I 
accept the fact that it probably had a top part, not just a titulus, for this very reason. Because I think that he fulfilled um, the, the sacrifice, sacrificial prophecies of the Old Testament. Then when he's laid down, his head hits one of the horns, his arms are on the two of the horns, and then his feet are on the fourth horn of the altar. And blood is coming and anointing that altar. His arms, his hands are pierced to anoint the, the two on the sides, and then his feet are pierced to anoint the, the fulfilling, again, the sin sacrifice. But there still had to be one more thing that happened to him in order to fully fulfill that sacrifice. The blood had to be what? Poured where? At the base of the altar. Isn't it interesting that they came to Jesus and they already found him dead, but they didn't find the malefactors dead. So for the malefactors, they had their legs broken. I mean, you think asphyxiation hanging on a cross is bad enough to have them come up with a big, boom, just break your legs so that now it's just compound. You don't even feel the asphyxiation happening anymore from the sheer pain. But when they come to Jesus, they find him to be dead. But just to make sure, they don't break his legs because not a bone will be broken. But just to make sure, the Roman soldier takes the spear and he does a heart thrust up under the ribs, through the lung, into the heart. They were proficient at it. They'd done it before. They knew what they were doing. People said, well, maybe they missed. They knew what they were doing. And what John records to us is a detail that's very important. That coming forth was a mixture of blood and water. Separation had already started to become. But in the fulfillment of the law, in the fulfillment of the plan, the blood of the sacrifice was now poured at the base of the altar. It has been finished. The payment has been made. 1 John chapter 2 tells us that he's not only the payment, the propitiation for our sins, but also for the sins of the the whole world. Isn't that mind-boggling? Even those who were spitting on him. We don't read this from John's account, but we know from the other accounts that while Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looked down at those who were spitting on him, those who were mocking him, and he said what? Father, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. I need to constantly remind myself of that when I'm interacting with the people in the world. That ultimately, they really don't know what they're doing. It's when you come to meet Jesus and you come to know the Father that you really gain an understanding of who He is and what He is like. But until that moment, you're really engrossed in yourself. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, the Passover sacrifice, and the sin sacrifice. But what's so exciting in that then is where it comes to us. And yes, I do think he was thinking about me. He was thinking about you. He was thinking about the world while he's hanging on that cross. I can't 
fathom how God hears all of us praying at one time anyway. And to think about Jesus thinking about the world while he's hanging on the, on the cross. But at that moment when he cries, Tetelestai, it has been completed. In the payment of that sin was your perfection as well. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, your perfection was all-encompassing into that. So we have our positional sanctification. Hebrews chapter 10. Hopefully you're still there in Hebrews. But in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning of verse 1, we read, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer, continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Drop down to verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. I love the mixture of the tenses. Do you get it? You have been perfected, but you are being sanctified. You're being set apart. But in God's accounting book, when God looks at the finances of Bob, if you would, I'm what? I'm paid for. I'm paid in full. It's a done deal. I don't have to add anything else to it. He's not saying, okay, Bob, I paid the main debt. You got to do the rest. I am perfect. You got a perfectionist complex? This is a verse for you. (laughs) Don't act like it though, okay? Because remember, he says, who are being what? Sanctified. Because you're not. But in God's economy, you are. Romans 8, 28, 39. You can read all that later, right? But that tells us that we are justified, we are glorified, we're all these things. And who can, bring in a, who can bring a charge against the elect of God? Nobody can. Do you get it? Why? Because you are perfect. You are perfected positionally. And then finally, our practical sanctification. Hebrews 12, verse 2. I'm going to start at verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we have been are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and... Guess what word that is? Teleo. He's the perfecter. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That Jesus, when he's on the cross, is perfecting Bob. Positionally. And he gets to the Father's throne, and he continues to work. And so Philippians chapter 1 says that he who began the good work in me will also what? Continue to... To perform it to the day of Christ. 
Do you get it? My perfection, and you can look it up these other verses that are there, talking about our perfection, that Jesus even prayed, John 17, when we were there, talking about that we might be perfect in oneness. That God has a plan from the beginning. He breathed into us the breath of life. He made us in his image and likeness so that we could be like him. Not the way Satan said, but the way he planned. Do you get it? That's his plan. One day this mortal is going to put on what? Immortality. This corruptible will put on incorruption. Can you, can you comprehend that? But the exciting thing is, the good news is, you already are. If you've asked Jesus into your hearts, into your life, you already are perfect. But if you haven't, you're under the law. So, what impact has the death of Christ had upon your life? Has it at all? Secondly, have you trusted in his sacrifice as a payment for your sins? If you haven't, please, please call upon the name of the Lord. Is there evidence of his work of perfection happening in your life? Is there then a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, thank you for your goodness and how you have made the payment upon the cross on our behalf. Jesus, before the worlds were laid, before you spoke them into being, you knew you'd come and redeem us, but you made us anyway. Thank you for that. Thank you for revealing that you were Yahweh in the flesh. Lord, help us to magnify you with our very lives. Thank you for the season where we can remember you coming into the world. Pray that we would do that, Lord, that we would reflect that to others. In Christ's name, amen.